I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. The primary role of the Old Testament prophets was to call God's people back to covenant faithfulness. The prophets saw how princes and nobles and priests, businessmen and women, normal men and women, lived their lives. The prophets saw the hearts of the people veer away from God, and they saw how the behavior of the people followed. Lost relationship with God always results in a degrading of moral behavior. The opposite is also true. A degrading in our moral behavior results in loss of vision for who God really is. The prophets saw these problems in society and were tasked with holding people accountable to covenant relationship with God, warning them of dangers ahead if they continued on their road away from God, and providing hope if they would return to enjoy the blessing of being in relationship with God. These prophets are known as lawsuit prophets. They make a case against the people for breaking covenant. You hear it in Micah 6.2, Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people, even with Israel he will dispute. The scope of lawsuit prophet was primarily in calling Israel back to covenant relationship, but God is not a regional pagan God tied only to one people in one locality. This too comes out in the prophets. Each of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, contain prophecies targeting the superpowers of Babylon and Egypt, as well as prophecies targeting regional powers like Tyre, Ammon, Edom, Moab, Philistia. In the short prophecy of Amos, chapters 1 and 2 lead up to a prophecy for Israel by first aiming at six non-Jewish nations. And then two of the other shorter prophets, Jonah and Nahum, both focus in on Assyria. My point is that the prophets of God understand he is king not only over Israel, but king over all the nations of the earth. The special covenant with Israel that came through Abraham and Moses does not set aside the universal covenants with all people established through Adam and Noah. All men, all women are accountable to God. We see this in the Old Testament prophets, and we see it here in the first chapter of Romans. Paul has taken on the role of covenant lawsuit prophet. We are in a courtroom, and he is the prosecuting attorney. He sees the path of men and women. He sees that that path is taking them away from God, and he's calling us back universally. He's not just calling Jew. He's calling Jew and Gentile. Paul sees God as king of all people. He has taken us to court, and we've been studying that indictment. The pagan person, the moral person, the religious person have all been accused. Now Paul is set up to deliver his closing argument. Just in case we weren't sure what Paul was doing in chapters 1 and 2, he has summed it up clearly for us here in verse 9. So let's read Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we any better than they? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jew and Greek are all under sin. So Paul's not setting up the Jew as better or worse. Paul's not setting up the Christian as better or worse. Paul's charge against mankind is universal. When he uses the term Greek here, Greek applies to Greek culture, not just the Greek person. And it was the dominant culture of the Roman Empire. So the Western culture might be a modern parallel to the concept of Greek or Hellenistic culture in Paul's day. So we call somebody Western. That's a, that's a broad span of culture. So when Paul says Jew and Greek here, it's like saying the religious and the pagan, all are under sin. Or like saying East and West, all are under sin. It's a universal statement. Everybody. Paul continues the charge with a song of condemnation in verses 10 to 18. He's going to get poetic. The composition of the song seems to be original with Paul, but the words are not. He's drawing mostly from the Psalms using poetry to drive home emotionally 
and rationally his charge that there is none righteous, not even one. Depending on words from the Psalms adds the weight of Old Testament authority to the indictment. So let's read this song of condemnation. It's in 3, verse 10 through 18. As it is written, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The first stanza of the songs in verse 10 to 12, and it contains two sets of three versets. To produce this stanza, Paul reworks the first three verses of Psalm 14 and possibly draws from Ecclesiastes 7.20 to bring in the word righteous, which works so well with Paul's courtroom language. So the, the first set of three is, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. And then the second set of three versets, all have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. The phrase, there is none, occurs five times in this first stanza. Paul clearly is emphasizing the universality of sinful human nature. The idea that everyone is basically good works in the Bible only until you get to Genesis chapter 3. So it works for two chapters. From there on, the Bible teaches that all people are fundamentally sinful, made good in God's image, but twisted, fallen, distorted. Every human being is affected by a sinful human nature. The result, there is none righteous not even one. So then we have the second stanza in verses 13 to 14. It's a little shorter. It's comprised of two sets of two versets composed from Psalm 5-9, Psalm 143, and Psalm 10-7. So the first set, their throat is an open grave with their tongues they keep deceiving. Then the second set, the poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So each verset here emphasizes the sinfulness of our words. And before Paul, Jesus taught that our words revealed darkness inside. In Matthew twelve thirty three to 37 Jesus said, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. You hear that in Paul's language. So in what person has not said things they wish they could take back? Words that reveal a self-focus or a bitterness or anger or jealousy that exists in the heart. Words which we say we didn't mean, but in reality we only wish we didn't mean them. Because our words reveal our heart. Like the second stanza, the third stanza in verse 15 to 18 contains two sets of two versets. And the first three versets come from Isaiah 59, 7-8. And the concluding verset comes from Psalm 36, 1. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The path to peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This stanza moves from the words of the second stanza to action. Not only have we spoken forth evil words from our heart, but we've walked down paths of selfishness, immorality, greed, and anger. So the last verset declares, there is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a very poetic way to say, We have this attitude in our hearts. I will do what I will do, and I don't care what God thinks about it. And we've all said this, forget it, God. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And if we haven't said it in so many words, we say it with our choices. 
We've said it with our actions. Back in the early 80s, Mike Wallace, host of the new show 60 Minutes, interviewed a man named Yehil Denur. He was a concentration camp survivor. Denur had been scheduled to testify at the Nuremberg trials in 1961 against Adolf Eichmann, an officer in the SS and one of the principal architects of the Holocaust. Upon entering the courtroom and seeing Eichmann for the first time since Auschwitz, Denur broke down in sobs and fainted. So now later in this interview, Wallace asked Denur why he broke down. Was it fear or was it loathing? What did you feel when you saw Eichmann? Denner gave a sobering explanation. He was not overcome with fear or hatred. Instead, he realized upon seeing Eichmann that this man was not a superman. He was not godlike. He was an ordinary man. So Dinner told Wallace, I was afraid about myself. I saw I was capable to do this. I am exactly like he. Those words stunned Wallace into silence. And a moment later, he finally summed up the interview with this statement. Eichmann is in all of us. The ugly truth about sin is that it's a universal condition. We are not basically good. That's a false band-aid we put over our conscience to soothe our soul into believing everything's all right. But we are not basically good. And it helps no one to pretend that they are. If a man has cancer, he needs to know the truth so he can seek a cure. Sin is a cancer of the soul. It does no good to pretend we're not sick. Much worse, if we do not know we are sick, we will not even try to seek a cure. Moving from the song of condemnation in verses 10 to 18, we come to 19 and 20. This is Paul's closing argument against mankind. So let's read this. Romans three nineteen and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul argues that what the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. What's the logic there? How is it that speaking to a select group results in holding the whole world accountable? You know, the more popular argument you usually hear from people is, how can God hold accountable those who do not know about his law? Paul is saying here that if we hold those who do know accountable, then that covers everybody. So about holding people accountable who do not know the law, we address that idea in chapter 2. Those under the law and those not under the law are both aware of a natural moral law. We each have some moral standard we live by. There is a moral principle in all of us, and none of us lives up even to our own moral standard. Sometimes our conscience defends us, sometimes it condemns us. We all know guilt. It is a human reality, and in the end, every human being is accountable to what we call general moral revelation. Paul's making a different point here. The point here is about special revelation, the revelation of God's moral will through the Scripture, specifically through the law of Moses. Who has the best chance to live in accordance with the moral will of God? The Jew does. The one who has access to the revealed will of God has the best chance to live out that will of God. And yet every single Jew has fallen short of the moral will of God. Every Jew will be declared guilty in the moral court. Paul's not degrading the Jewish person here. Paul's saying that the Jewish person of all people has the best chance in God's court. Without the law of God teaching us his will, we have no hope of living up to his standard. But if no Jew who has the special revelation of God 
has ever lived up to the standard of God? How can anyone without special knowledge of God's moral will hope to live up to that standard? So consider who we might be talking about here. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Daniel, Mary, no Jew, even with the possession of the Bible, has ever lived up to the moral will of God. And if those who know God's will cannot live up to God's will, then clearly those who are not even trying to live according to God's express will can live up to it. As a result, every mouth is shut and the whole world is accountable to God. No pagan man or woman, no moral man or woman, no religious man or woman who stands before the court of God and says, Judge me by what I have done, will be declared righteous. All will be declared guilty. As Paul says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Moral law cannot justify. Human religion is an attempt to ignore the cancer inside, to hide the fact that we are at the core sinful, to dress ourselves up on the outside in the hopes that God will not see through the charade. In our last session, I introduced the two questions of covenant. Now, a covenant's an agreement that clarifies the history and the expectations between two parties. When we enter into a covenant relationship with God, there are essentially two questions we need clarified. The first question of covenant is this, what makes me acceptable to be in relationship with God? Using Paul's courtroom language here, we could ask it also this way, what makes me righteous so that I might be in relationship with God? What makes me righteous? What makes me acceptable? I asked you to think about that question in terms of what is your part and what is God's part? Your part we're calling law. Those are the do's and the don'ts you're expected to do. God's part we're calling grace, which is what God gives to you. So we need to clarify the first question of covenant by asking what percentage of the answer involves grace, God's part, and what percentage of the answer involves law, my part. What makes me acceptable to be in relationship with God? How much of that is grace? How much of that is law? Paul's closing argument invalidates law as an option for making anyone acceptable in the eyes of God. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes knowledge of sin. So I am not made acceptable before God by my religious and moral works. Not only me, no one. Not Abraham, not Moses, not Mother Teresa, not Martin Luther King, and not Billy Graham. No one is acceptable before God on the basis of their good deeds. And if none of these, certainly not me. So we're, we're getting closer to the answer of the first question of the covenant. What makes you acceptable to God? But we're not there yet. And, and I'm sorry, but we're going we're gonna to have to wait until the verdict, and that's going to come in the next lesson. I will go ahead and give you the second question of covenant so you can think about it. Having become acceptable to God, in however way we end up answering that first question, I then have this second question. How do I live in a way that is pleasing to God? This is not asking how I establish relationship with God, but rather, how do I live out the relationship with God that I already possess? And here again, we can try to clarify by asking how much of this involves grace? And how much involves law? What percentage and how I live for God depends on what he does for me or in me? And how much depends on what I do? So I'm also going to have to leave this question until next time. For now, though, consider Paul's words in verse 20 and how those words relate to each of these two questions. Paul has concluded, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Is Paul saying that the only point of the Mosaic law is to show us that we're sinful. Is that the only use of the law? Does the law have no pedagogical purpose to teach us, for example, about the nature of God? 
Or does the law have no moral value to spur us on to live in a way that's true and that's good? The answer depends on which question we're dealing with. Are we dealing with the first question of covenant, or are we dealing with the second question of covenant? Is this about me becoming acceptable or righteous before God? Or is this about me living out relationship with God in a way that's pleasing to God? We are not yet addressing issues related to the second question. How do I live it out? In fact, the objections raised in the last lesson in chapter 3, 1 through 8, those objections, what about the sin and what about sin in the life of the believer and what about the Jew? Both of those questions relate to the second question of covenant. How do we live out relationship with God? How do we please God with our lives? And that's why Paul put those questions off, at least the more detailed answer to those questions. Because before moving on to issues of the second question of covenant, how do we live out relationship, we've got to answer the first question of covenant. What makes us able to have relationship in the first place? This courtroom scene that Paul has created in Romans 1-4 through is designed to solidly establish the gospel answer to the first question of covenant. What makes me acceptable or righteous in the eyes of God? And so Paul's answer in verse 20 stands. The law does not help you at all in answering the first question, because the only assurance you have with the law is that you are going to break it. If this first question depends on the law, you're eternally lost. And this does not mean that there's no value or usefulness for the Christian in the law of God. This means there is no help from the law in answering the first question. But there was never meant to be. In relation to the first question, the law was only ever intended to reveal to us the insurmountable problem of our own sin nature. The law teaches us that we cannot live up to God's standard of righteousness. Paul's clear. No works justify. The law shows you your sin, but we do not want to jump ahead of Paul's argument. Paul has eliminated law as an answer to the first question of covenant, but he's not yet addressed the question of the law's role in the second question of covenant. That will begin in chapter 5. So it's left to you for now to think about it. What percentage does law play in fulfilling the second question of covenant? How do I live out my relationship with God in a way that's pleasing to him? And then also, how much does grace play in answering that question? Let's end up our consideration of Paul's closing argument by being crystal clear about the problem Paul has charged humanity with. My brother lives in Texas. Everything's big in Texas. Well, not everything. I heard a Texas pastor tell a story once of a family that went to beach down in Galveston on the Gulf of Mexico, and while on vacation, they found a small, wet, half-starved dog that was apparently abandoned by its owner. And so as kids will do, the kids asked to keep it, and the parents, losing their minds, said yes. So they took it home with them back from their vacation, and they gave the dog a bath and fed it, and they named it Sparky, and they put a blue ribbon around its neck, and Sparky lived happily with the family for a couple of days until the family came home and discovered their cat dead and half-eaten in the backyard. So quite naturally, this made the family worry about Sparky. Could Sparky have eaten the cat? So they took Sparky to the vet to find out if anything was wrong with him, and the vet responded, There's nothing wrong with your dog, except he's not a dog. It's a gigantic African rat. So apparently the rat had traveled aboard a cargo ship from Africa swam ashore to the Gulf of Mexico, and was found by this nice family. The moral of the story, you can take a rat home, clean it up, even put a nice blue ribbon around its neck, but that doesn't change the fact that a rat is a rat is a rat. 
Here's my problem. The only way for me to believe that I can be justified by the law is to not take the law too seriously. If the law means going to church occasionally, being decent most of the time, taking out the trash without being asked, and saying a prayer at night, then maybe I'll be able to feel okay about myself. It also might work if when I look at God's will in the Bible, I only apply it to other people. You know, this is how my neighbor should behave. This is how my wife should love me. This is what my children should do to be obedient. You know, I'm all for this. But as soon as I look intently into the law of God and try to apply it to myself, I'm in trouble. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, I'm lost right there. But let's, let's go a little further. Love your enemy. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Love God with your heart, mind, and soul. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is useful for building others up. Enough. You know, that's enough. You know, I don't do it, okay? By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Honest, open-eyed pursuit of holiness, according to God's definition of holiness, is a mirror into my true condition. You can wash me. You can dress me up in religious clothes. You can teach me to say please and thank you. You can give me a new circle of friends. And you can tell me that I am basically a good person. Just don't ask me to live a holy life of love. Keep the mirror away. As soon as I truly try to live the law with internal honesty and sincerity, that law reminds me that a rat is a rat is a rat. I am not basically good. There is a principle in me that moves me to do what I ought not do and resist doing that which I know I should do. It is the sin nature. The harder I try, the more apparent that sin nature is. So let's be honest. I have a cancer of the soul, and let's not try to pretend otherwise. You have it too, and we need a cure that is outside ourselves. It's not within our capacity to cure ourselves of this cancer. We cannot save ourselves. Without a cure, we are hopelessly and eternally lost. The moral defense before God can never work. Paul has brought us to the very end of ourselves. If we are to be saved from ourselves, we're going to need a miracle. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.